Let's turn now to Second John, reading in the English Standard Version. We'll read the whole book, which is all 13 verses. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part of his wicked works, or in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not write by way of email or text or Facebook. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. It's been said, I don't know how, how true this would be, it's sort of a legend, that John the Apostle was the last one to have died of all of the twelve. And many of them, if not all of them, died tragic, tragic deaths. We know that Peter was likely crucified. Many of them slain, persecuted, James taken by the sword, whatever. They say that John uh, himself, as you know in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote, says that he was on the Isle of Patmos for the Word of God and in himself tribulation. John was in tribulation himself on the Isle of Patmos. That's why he writes about tribulation and trials and struggles and so on in the book of Revelation. But... The uh, legend goes that John survived having been boiled in oil. Have you ever heard that? I'm not sure there's any truth in it. It sounds a little Romish to me. Whatever. But it is, I think, pretty factual that John lived to be a very old man. The dating of the book of John and all of John's writings, all five books, Gospel of John, the three epistles in Revelation, puts these dates as being likely in the 90s. So if Jesus died in the age of 30, 
excuse me, in, in, in A.D. 30, Jesus himself probably being about 33 or 4, John being one of his disciples, you have to figure John to be at least in his 20s, correct? Jesus wouldn't have chosen him to be a disciple if he was 12 years old. These were obviously mature men. They were fishermen. They were parents. They, they were adults. So we have to say that John was likely somewhere in his 80s, maybe more. He could have been Jesus' age. Regardless, he was an old man when he wrote this book. And so the legend goes that John, at the very end of his life, when he was up in the upper years of his life, comes walking in to the church, and here comes the Apostle John. He walks into the assembly, and all the eyes are upon him. And he struggles to get the words out, but he says, Brethren, love one another. And those were his final words. It seems to hit the heart, doesn't it, of what John likely would be saying. Because that seems to be repeated over and over in his epistles. We got that last week. And right here in the beginning of the, of the epistle of Second John, we have reference to love one, two, three, four times right in the first six verses. And that is the commandment of God to love one another and how we love in general is by keeping the commandments. So what is being told here by John to the readers of his epistle? There are three things that are being told, I believe. In verse 5, is to love one another. Secondly, in verse 8, is to watch yourself so that you won't be deceived. And the third thing is in verse 10, do not receive false teachers. It seems pretty obvious as you read through the New Testament, if you know anything about church history, and church history is a tricky thing how one interprets it, because sometimes you can exalt church history to become almost like supplemental to the Bible, and it becomes sort of like the guideline as to how the church should function in the Bible, in the New Testament teachings, sort of get sort of dismissed and ignored in that church history kind of supplants it, and that is a danger. But we can be assured at least when John's writing his epistles, one of the concerns that he has is about the appearance of the Antichrists, plural. Not the Antichrist, but the Antichrists. And who are the Antichrists? The ones that were denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is what's known as docetism, which evolved into a form of Gnosticism. Docetism would state that the flesh isn't real of Jesus, that He wasn't a real person. He was just a fictitious human being. He appears to be real physically. He is a real being, but He's only there in a phantom-like figure. John was saying this is a heretical doctrine, this is dangerous, and the church needs to avoid it entirely. I think something the closest... Well, there are all kinds of occults out there that we need to be aware of sometimes, because even Christians can be led astray uh, from the truth. But I think something like Jehovah Witnesses who have some very serious heretical doctrines. Matter of fact, when one time when I was living in Worcester and just preparing to get ready to go uh, to break bread with the, with the church body and a, 
to Jehovah's Witnesses. I saw him come by the window and knocked on my door. I was eating my cereal, I remember at the time. And they knocked, and, and I was very close to the door in the apartment there. And I just simply quoted verse number uh, 10 that says, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, and I said it out loud, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. And I says, I'm not able to receive you into my house, and I'm not able to bid you Godspeed. And that's how I left him with them. Plus, I had the rush to get out of there. But nevertheless, um, I think that, which is sort of ironic here, it's a good balance, because John is the pusher for love. Love, love. It's a big thing with John, and it should be. Greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. God so loved the world. Those, these are John's words that he has under inspiration that he's communicating. And yet, in the epistles, he is saying, you've got to toe the line. You've got to be firm. You've got to be assured of what you believe. And you need to resist the temptation of allowing deceivers to lead you astray. The first verse says this, the elder to the elect lady. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the book this week. I hope everybody does. Uh, as I try to journey with you through the New Testament, with you, not just me alone, because I think the way you can benefit from sermons, from for, for preach, for a preach, is by you being saturated in the Word so that you can absorb what's being said. Also, it's a way of testing me too. It holds me accountable as to whether I'm being faithful to the text or not. Well, the way it begins this epistle is that it says, the elder to the elect lady. Now, if you've checked your commentaries, you would probably find a diversity here of understanding who the lady is. Who is the lady here? What have you read? What have you understood it to be? A church. Okay, you gave us both answers then. That's correct. The lady is either a local church or a singular person. I don't know what your vote would be for, which of the two you would choose. Um, we don't have a whole lot to go on to tell you the truth. We do have examples, though, in the New Testament where the church is referred to as a female. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, I have espoused you to one husband. So she's referred to as a female. The picture we get in the Revelation is the bride coming with the bridegroom in union at the marriage feast. So the church corporately is viewed in a female fashion. Of course, Jesus is the male. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride collectively, so there's no fault in finding a feminine uh, word to describe the church. That, that would be very biblical. The problem I have, though, is with the expression, and her children. If the church is a local body of people, and obviously he's writing to a specific person or persons, who would the children be? I mean, that would be odd saying, I'm writing to the church... And to you in the church. Well, the church is the church. But that's just my take on it. And I've always felt rather strongly that I think he's writing to a person rather than to a body of people. 
a woman that he knew. But what strikes us, and it should strike us, is the fact that he calls her an elect lady, to the elect lady. Do you think of yourself as elect? Now, some of your translations, the NIV, I believe, has chosen lady. It's a, the Greek word is, is, is the word for, for election or elect, electos. That's the word here. To the elect lady and her children. I take it that this is a woman with her household of children who, like her, believe, or at least some of them believe, because in verse 4, it says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Some of your children. Now, the King James, or New King James, the Textus Receptus, you won't find the word some there, but our better manuscripts certainly affirm that the word some should be there. So although the children are addressed collectively with the mother, the lady, if we can assume that the lady is the mother, then it's some of them of the children that were the ones that were abiding in the truth that you could say were regenerated children of God, adopted into the family of God. Well, this word elect, I chose this word elect to uh, preach on the doctrine of election because... I think it's a doctrine that's important. Our church believes it's important. We are established upon that doctrine that uh, the Bible teaches election. I I don't know how anyone who's a Bible reader can't believe election. So it kind of goes back to what do we understand by election? Let me just say, first of all, that Paul uses the word ten times in his writings. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God or by God. Jesus, remember too, He uses the word elect, that the angels will gather from the four corners of the earth, who? The elect. So there is an elect people. Peter uses the word twice in his epistles. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second Peter 1.10, he says, make your calling and election sure. Make your calling and election sure. Now, that's what the Scripture says that we should be doing. Don't just assume it superficially. I signed the card. I raised my hand. I made a profession of faith way back when. Don't base it on that. Be very sure. Check the foundations. Review the crosswork of Christ. Ask yourself, do I believe? Have I believed? Do I trust Jesus in Him only? Make your calling an election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, John here refers, uses the word elect twice. The first verse and the last verse. The first one, to the elect lady and her children, the end of the epistle, the children of your elect sister greet you. So interesting, the lady with her children and then the children with the lady is how the epistle begins and ends. And the word elect is in connection with the lady, verse 1, and in connection with the sister and with at least some of the children. They're classified as elect. Now, can I know of your election for sure 100%? No. 
I can't because I can only judge by outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord knows them that are His. And those that are His depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 The foundation of God stands sure. There's no uncertainty with God who is in His family. He knows who He has adopted. John uses the word elect twice. And it's not a surprise because in the Gospel of John, of all the writers of the Bible, of the Bible, I would say in general, John is one who focuses the most on the idea of predestination, election, chosen, and so on, in various themes that he weaves into his writings, particularly in the Gospel of John. Let me give you some examples. One thirteen: those which who, who receive Christ are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Spurgeon was asked one time, how would you describe Calvinism? He says, the way I would shortly describe it would be this way, that salvation is of the Lord. Can you say amen? It's of the Lord. I want to give God the glory. And that's what John is telling us, that even though we are the receivers of the Lord, to as many as received Him, to them God gives the authority to become the children of God. Well, how do we receive them? Because verse 14 tells us it wasn't the will of the flesh, it wasn't the will of man, it wasn't somebody imposing this on you, someone wasn't talking you into it, it wasn't something that you generated in your inward being to receive Jesus with some sort of extra umph internally with you, but it was of God. God. So, this is who we want to thank is God for our great salvation. One time I, back in the 80s, I, was a, I met a brother who was a very fervent evangelist, loved the Lord, but had a very strong Arminian tendency to the way in which he approached evangelism. It was pretty much just Ask Jesus into your heart and that's all you have to do. And uh, we, we, we were meeting in the police station one particular day in, in his office. He was a sergeant and... Well, no, he, uh, yeah, he was a sergeant. Well, the one I was talking to was an officer who was working in, 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 inside. And a sergeant was there. And then just after we got going, the captain of the police department came in and he sat in with us. And he was listening to the conversation. It was a very friendly type of a conversation, going back and forth. And, and the captain said nothing. He actually had his feet up. I can remember, and I could see his gun on on, on the side of his uh, of his belt. And uh, he had his arms like this. And he looked at us, and he says, "I've listened to both of you. Now tell me which one of these views glorifies God the most." Wasn't that a great question? Which one glorifies God the most? I said, Captain, that's an excellent question. In my opinion, my brother Chris here is giving glory to man. It's man's doings. It's man's efforts. Whereas what I think I'm posing from the Scriptures that it's God who has worked in us. It is God who has drawn us. And yes, in the epistle of John, we do have over and over references to this theme. Jesus says to, uh, uh, to uh, Nathaniel, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, 
I saw you. 637, all that the Father hath given to me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. People often quote the second half of that. He that comes to him, God, will, the Lord will not cast out. But who are the ones that are going to come to him? All that the Father hath given him shall come to him. 665, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. 1026, you believe not because you are not of my sheep. 1511, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. 17.2 As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. 17.9 Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me. These verses just amplify the doctrine of election. Now, what is election? Let me define it. And it's been defined this way. God has singled out certain ones, that is, before time began, to be objects of His saving grace. While others are not left, while others, excuse me, while others are left to suffer the just punishment of their sins. Now, you might say, oh man, predestined, pre-chosen... Let me tell you that there are some objections. Even Luther said it this way, by contemplating on the doctrine of predestination, it has more than once cast me down to the abyss of utter desolation. Calvin called it Calvin, although he wasn't the originator of the five points of Calvinism. I'll get to that in a second. Calvin called it the horrible decree. Now, that might surprise you. Luther and Calvin were certainly solid, reformed teachers and preachers, and they definitely believed in predestination, but they also recognized there's a side of it that is not savory to our personal reflections. And if you don't have a feeling like that, I don't know how humble you are then about the doctrine. Because it is humbling. Why God chose you and maybe didn't choose somebody else, that should humble you. Spurgeon did say that Calvinism is just another name or a nickname for Bible Christianity. I'm not interested in following the Reformers or Calvin or all the five points. I'm interested in what the Bible says. And I hope that we all are as well. And we're all entitled and expected to search the Scriptures in these matters. But when history seems to point in a certain direction, you might say, boy, I don't know if I'm right. For instance, the major confessions of the historic church that have been Calvinistic are the following. The Church of England, the 39 Articles of the Church of England are Calvinistic. They say that the, the creed is Calvinistic, the, uh, the ritual is Roman-ish, and the clergy is Arminian-ish. Seems to be true about the Church of England. Anyway, the Belgic confession, uh, confession of French Reformational creed or confession 
1561 supports the doctrines that we're talking about. The Heidelberg Catechism of the Dutch Reformed Faith and the Reformed Church of America. The Canons of Dort in 1619. The Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians, 1646. The Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists, 1658. The London Confession of the Baptists, 1689 with its predecessors of 46 and 44 as well. And we could go on and talk about the Philadelphia Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, and other confessions that historically have supported the doctrines that we call Calvinism, or better, the five points of Calvinism. And someone said, a better way of calling it the five points of Calvinism is to call it the five pointers to Christ. After all, I'm not interested in what so-and-so taught. I'm interested in what the Word of God teaches and how it glorifies the Lord. Those who were Calvinistic was Charles Spurgeon himself, John Newton, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Thomas Chalmers, John Owen, John Milton, all the Puritans, Augustine, going way back in church history. Some of the more modern ones of our day would be Piper, Spruill, MacArthur, Tim Keller, J.I. Packer, Matt Chandler, Johnny Erickson, and on and on and on we could go. Some of the ministries today that are supportive of the five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace would be Desiring God Ministries, Ligonier Ministries, Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Nine Marks, Acts 29 Churches, Sovereign Grace Ministries, Southern Baptist Seminary, and the list could go on and on. In reaction to errant Catholicism is where they rallied around, the reformers that is, in the 16th century around what we call the five solas, which I really think are a handmaid to the five points of Calvinism or to the tulip, and that is, the five souls are this, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. The TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, that acronym, um, believe it or not, I just found this out in reading a book a week or so ago. I probably knew it before, but I must have forgotten it. Do you realize how recent that TULIP is, uh, that particular acronym. T standing, by the way, for total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of saints. Want to take a guess at that? Lorraine Bettner's book, 1932, was the first time the idea of a TULIP was proposed in that format. The five points weren't proposed by Calvin, but came out at the spirit, excuse me, at the synod of Dort in 1618 in response to the followers of Jacob Arminius, who challenged the church in Holland on the doctrine of God's sovereignty and free will. So they were the ones that had five points. Those who responded to the five points, that later became the five points known as the five points of Calvinism. The synod countered the five points of the remonstrance with a five-point response that came to be known, as I just said, the five points of Calvinism. Getting to our text here in 
the epistle of John to the elect lady and to the children of your elect sister. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. I can't be sure of your election. You can't be sure of mine. And it's been said that maybe we can't personally 100% ever be real 100% certain that we are an elect, but we can make it sure. And that's sort of a... I'm quoting what others have said. I don't personally feel so strongly about that. I feel like I can know that I'm an elect. And that's what's going to give me assurance and peace in my own heart. When I have to cross the line, when I have a hospice come in and take care of me, I want to have that, and do have that certainty that I belong to Him. That for me to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. Didn't Paul have that assurance? We were singing, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's what we want to have. We want to have that assurance. We want to know that we're an elect of God. And oftentimes we base our own personal election on our own personal behavior. And there should be some correspondence there, shouldn't there? Be between our election and our sanctification. You can't say you're an elect of God and you live like the devil. Forget it. The Bible doesn't give you any encouragement. You should doubt your salvation. But on the other hand, the Lord wants us, as we're reading in the book of Romans, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the kind of confidence that a real believer in Jesus Christ has. And that's the key. It's believing in Jesus. So election, it can be scary. I agree. I think if we understand it, we would say, yes, that can be somewhat disheartening. It can sort of loose the moorings a bit. One of the simple ways of understanding it would be from a evangelistic standpoint, and I've said this before many times, but for some of you that may have not may not have heard this, even though we can be Calvinistic, and by the way, being Calvinistic or doctrines of grace is really a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. You know, would you go fishing in a pond? Like probably where the Roberts live, there's no fish in that pond. What's the sense of throwing a pole, throwing a, a hook baited to catch fish when you know there's no fish there. But the Lord informs us that He says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Or it could be said, I have other elect people other than Jewish people in the Gentile world who are my sheep who I'm going to draw and I'm going to bring in. That's good for us to know. So, When Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, it's good to know that there are fish out there in the ponds that the Lord intends on saving. So the fish in the pond, he's looking and he sees over the archway the words that says, whosoever will may come and drink of the water freely. And he says, wow, that's a that's a promise. That's me. It says, whosoever. I'm one of the whosoever's. I see that, I go through the archway, and I'm inside now because I've responded to the gospel. But then I look back and I see on the inside of the archway, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
Wow! I didn't know that when I was out here. That's all I could see. And that's all you and I see is we see the whosoevers. We see a world of lost sinners who need the gospel. So we preach free grace to the world. We preach freely to all and to whosoever will believe shall everlasting life receive. When the Philippian jailer, obviously he had heard the songs that were being sung in the jail that night by Paul and Silas. Remember at midnight they sang praises to the Lord. And then the Lord sent an earthquake, broke up the foundations of the prison. The doors were open and the jailer thought, oh boy, I'm going to lose my job. This is an insult to, to my position as a jailer keeping the, the uh, prisoners in their, in their cells. The doors were open and lights are out. He springs in with the light. He sees the apostles Paul and Silas there and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, don't worry about it. If you're an elect, you'll get it. No way. No way. That's an abuse of the doctrine. An absolute abuse. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There was no uncertainty. There was no like hidden agenda. Well, this doctrine of election, that is something that uh, I don't know that I can tell anybody that if they believe. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So we have to kind of live in these two worlds. We call this antinomies. Where there seems to be strength on one side and strength on this side. That I've got to believe. I've got to repent. I've got to come to faith in Christ. God's not going to believe for me. He's not like John Riesinger said. It's not like, I don't know how you guys do with your toothpaste tools. My wife does a terrible job with it. I mean, she is finicky about every little thing in the house. But the way she takes care of her toothpaste tubes is horrible. I'm embarrassed. If you ever come to my house, don't open up our bathroom drawers. And if you see one like I'm describing to you, it's hers and not mine. Because what I do is I nicely fold them at the end and I push the, 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 the uh, toothpaste forward so that when I take it in my hand, I just have to give it one squeeze and it easily comes out. And I know that I've gotten every ounce of the toothpaste out of that by time it's done, whereas hers, because of the way she has manhandled it, that the toothpaste is all over the place and it's probably half full when she's ready to throw it away. Whereas with me, it's completely empty. So, it's a little lesson on how to use your toothpaste uh, in the future. And I used to sell the Crest and the Colgate, so I was very meticulous about the whole dental category. Well, anyway, that's a free lesson that you got here today. But anyway, God does not operate like that like I do with my tube of toothpaste. I'm forcing it out of me, of, of it. That's not how God pressures us into conversion. And I don't understand the mystery of it, but I do know, as Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it listeth, you hear the sound thereof, and you cannot tell whence it is coming or whither it is going. So is everyone that is what? Born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. It's not a birth that's created by you. You didn't regenerate yourself. It took the power of God to operate in you. And that's why we say, to God be the glory. 
great things He has done. Look what He did for me. I was dead in trespasses and sins. And He has made me alive in Christ Jesus by His resurrection and I'm raised up with Him and seated together with Him in the heavenly places. That should make us Pentecostal, brothers and sisters. When you think of the doctrine that God was willing to save some in the world and you were one of the some. I don't know who the rest of the non-some are, but I know by God's grace and grace alone that I'm one of His children. And I want to praise Him. I want to say, Lord, to You belongs all the glory and the honor. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I deserve nothing. But you're, you're all good and gracious and merciful to me because if I was left to myself... I would rather be in the world, eating, drinking, and being merry, and losing my soul, than to be right with a holy God. But when God works in the heart of a person, it makes them feel like... And that's what happened with me. I I was, you could say, in the prime of life. Early 20s, riding high on the saddle, got sports, got girls, got cars, got money... A lot of these wonderful conveniences of life, so-called. And yet, God was making me feel like these things aren't satisfying. There's got to be something more than that. Like when Brady was interviewed after Super Bowls, he has said, after getting, I think it was maybe his first ring when he got it, because that's as high as you can go, right, in, in the sports world. He got it now, and he's like, boy, it seems like it's almost anticlimactic. Like, is, is this it? Well, that's what happens when the, so, the Lord begins to work in the soul. You begin to look at worldly things and saying, they really aren't satisfying. The promiscuous sex lifestyle, the, the drunkenness, the drugs, uh, uh, the lying, the cheating, and, and all of these other things that people, for the moment, are being blown by the winds and waves of the world that seems to keep them adrift. But then when the Spirit of God works, it starts to bring you back. It makes you really think deeply about what am I here for? What is it all about, Alfie said? Is it just for the moment we live? What is it all about? It's got to be something more. And that's why we praise the Lord for being able to be addressed by God to the elect brother, to the elect Elaine, to the elect Josiah, to the elect Harrison, to the elect, 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 all of those of you that belong to the Lord, an elect. What an expression to give to a person in elect. And the elect certainly need these encouragements like John is giving about truth and about love, about commandment keeping, about not being deceived, about watching yourself so don't, you don't lose what you have worked for so that you can win a full reward. That's the exhortation for, an, for an, uh, an elect. And then the last verse, the children of your elect sister greet you. Begins with the elect lady and her children and ends with the children in her elect sister. So apparently it's one family addressing uh, the other family. The two sisters are elect, they're children of God, and some of the children of the two mothers are elect children as well. They're children of God. Now, we don't use that word elect very often. We sometimes might refer to one another as St. Patrick, 
Saint Michelle, Saint Michael, Saint Seth. We are saints of God before the Lord. That's that's quite an expression. But we don't often call each other, do we? Elect, hey, elect brother. But boy, it's true. It's true, and it's humbling because it makes us realize it's God who chose me. He says that. I have chosen you. And that's why the translation could read the, elect, the, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. Chosen. And it's not like God looked down the, 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 the tunnels of time and saw you and then chose you based on His foreknowing you would be saved. That is what you could call post-destination rather than pre-destination. And in the post-destinational view, it gives man more of the sovereignty than God. God's choice is based on your choosing Him rather than the other way of God. My election precedes my believing. I believe because I'm an elect. There's an expression I wrote here. I hope I can find it. Um, about the fact that um, if I can't find it, I think I can give it to you basically what I uh, wrote. Oh, yeah. You are elect before you were born. But you're not called elect till you are born again. Let me repeat that. You are elect before you were born, but you are not called elect till you're born again. Spurgeon puts it this way. You must first deny the authenticity and full inspiration of the Holy Scriptures before you can legitimately and truly deny election. He says, and this is a good balance, your damnation is your own election, not God's. You see, an extremist position of Calvinism would deduce that a person was damned by God's purposing them to be damned, relieving the individual from their choosing to be damned. But Spurgeon says, your damnation is your own election, not God's. I like that's a good balance. He says, it always seems inexplicable to me that those who claim free will so very boldly for man should not also allow some free will to God. Why should not Jesus Christ have the right to choose His own bride? Chosen of God. Read R.C. Sproul's book on that sometime. If you have any concerns, I would highly recommend that. That was very clarifying to me at one time because I want to have a biblical view um, and that helped me to understand some of the nuances and some of the negative sides that someone could draw wrongly over the five points of Calvinism that could steer you away. And by the way, the strongest evangelists in the history of Christianity have been the doctrines of grace, brethren. The Calvinists, so to speak, have been out there with the gospel, firm, believing in the great grace of God that goes out promiscuously to all mankind and can boldly say, whosoever will may come. And can quote John 3.16, that God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly 